Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Can Converse podcast. We're your host, Henry. And I'm Medina. And today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Jen Heemstra. Jen, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm Jen Heemstra, and I'm a professor of chemistry at Emory University. We would like to congratulate you on recent award from the ACS Women Chemist Committee Rising Star Award. That's pretty amazing, and we were very happy to see that you won it. So based on your work from Twitter, we were really impressed to see how much you advocate for DI and STEM. And we were wondering at what stage in your life you came down to, you know, advocating and seeing the importance of it. So was it maybe some experience that you had in grad school or was it at what point in your life, I guess? Gosh, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I'll say that there was certainly one event that shifted things for me pretty significantly towards really defining the vision for the impact that I want to, you know, try to have on academic culture. But like most things in our life, it's really just a product of, you know, all of the experiences that you have and the way that you integrate those experiences and you formulate, you know, vision for what you want to do. And as you go through your career, you start to recognize opportunities to have that impact that you want to have, you know, coming up through, you know, that kind of academic system as a woman in STEM, you know, I'll say that probably the first moment when it really, really impacted me was actually the day of my PhD defense. And I had a postdoc lined up and was really excited to be defending and going on that postdoc. And then I got a call from my you know, future punitive postdoc advisor that morning, actually hours before my defense saying, you know, hey, I thought about it. And because you're a woman, that means you might get pregnant and be out of lab. You know, I was an organic chemist. We work with all of these, you know, kind of somewhat toxic organic chemicals. And at the time it was thought that like, oh, if you're pregnant, you can't possibly be in lab. I actually later was pregnant and worked in lab with a really supportive postdoc advisor and showed that that didn't have to be true. But he said, well, you know, you'd have to be out of lab for nine months and I just can't take that risk to have a postdoc who's going to leave. And they were like, apropos of nothing. Right. And so he took away his postdoc offer. And that was like hours before my defense. And I think that was one of the first moments where it really landed for me. Some of the unique challenges I've faced and, you know, I've certainly dealt with discrimination and harassment and things like that then throughout my career. And those have been challenging, but it's, you know, I would say more so it creates an awareness that there are groups of people who face even much, much greater challenges. So, you know, thinking intersectionally, people of color, members of the LGBTQ plus community, those with disabilities, and those who are at the intersection of multiple of those identities can face immense challenges in academia. And also a realization that I was able to weather these difficult situations because I had really fantastic mentors and that that was a huge privilege that not everyone had. And so as I've moved through my career, it's really just been a steady recognition as I hear stories from students and grow my awareness of some of the things that are happening out there. And also realizing that, you know, I don't have power to change nearly as much as I wish I could. You know, there's things that like the institutional and the whole academic system level that really, really need to change. And I don't, you know, have the authority to do that, you know, yet, maybe someday, but there are definitely things that I can do. And whenever there's opportunities to do that, it's a way that hopefully I can pay forward all of the things that my mentors have done for me throughout my career. That's really interesting to hear. And I think, you know, talking about your own personal experience really gives kind of credence to a lot of the challenges that these you know, numerous communities face on a daily basis. And I kind of just wondered, could you touch on how you think social media has it enhance the ability to advocate for you know these communities or would you say it's kind of made it a bit more difficult in terms of 
people being able to freely express their views and then somewhat get direct and often critical feedback from people about that? What's your kind of view on the use of social media for advocating for these kind of issues? Boy, if there's a complex ecosystem out there, it is social media. It is a whole really complex community of lots of people with different viewpoints, lots of people with different viewpoints about how social media should be used and how dialogue should happen. And that makes it a really messy place, but it also makes it a place that people can have impact in lots of different ways. And I think even how I have approached my relationship with social media has changed a lot over the last couple of years. You know, when I first started being active, I mean, I totally got on Twitter by accident, I will say. It was a complete, I didn't even set up my own account. A friend made it for me and then it sat there dormant for three years. And then we were trying to hire a postdoc and my friends kept telling me how useful Twitter was. And I, you know, like reset my password and logged back in and advertised for this postdoc. And then initially it was just me kind of being like, oh, well, people are talking about these topics in academic culture and I've got something to say. And this is a place I can just say it in 280 characters or less. I'm just going to I'll often say what I want to say. If things that I say on Twitter have a positive impact, like that would make me happy. And hopefully I have the ability because of the position that I'm in now to maybe, you know, speak to other people who are in a similar position. I don't think we should have a system where people in my position should have to like only listen to people in my position. Like I think that they should be listening to students like above all. But I also realize that in the system we're currently in, there are probably some places where my voice can carry weight. And so if I can be advocating to help people think differently about mentorship or leadership or mental health or, you know, putting students first, I want to do that. But I'll say that maybe one of the biggest ways in which social media impacts my advocacy is that, you know, a lot of being effective, and I still have so much growth to do in this, so I am like so far from having anything figured out. You know, being an advocate means constantly growing and learning, and one of the best ways to grow and learn is just from listening to people's lived experiences, and so something I notice is that, you know, by being on Twitter and seeing people talking about their lived experiences, you know, that's part of my, you know, consistent growth and learning and it's constantly raising my awareness and then that really shapes the things that I'm able to do in real life you know I sometimes wonder like how much does like a Twitter post you know people see it they might like it or not and then they forget about it in like a day or two does that have any impact whereas a lot of the impact is really through you know things like policies that you can advocate to put in place like in your real life in your institution or through national organizations and you know social media certainly is influencing a lot of that by influencing the people who are crafting those policies yeah I think the the key distinguishing point, as you pointed out, is that it's very important to distinguish that there are obviously good and bad things about Twitter or any other social media. And just being on the good side of things. And the key thing is for advocating something is being personal. And I think that's the key part of your Twitter account that I really, really like, because whenever I read your posts, I always feel so connected to you. Even if we don't know you, the Twitter posts that you post, they're so personal and you're always sharing with your experience. That's the key way of showing people the importance of something. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. It's often very relatable as well. I always read them and I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking, you know, the other day. It's just like, Quite funny. But going back to what you talked about earlier on about growing in yourself and developing as an individual kind of over time, could you talk about kind of how you view failure in terms of maybe your biggest failure that you could see in kind of the last maybe few years? What was it that made you grow as an individual from that? 
Oh yeah, I would love to talk about that. And actually what you touched on earlier of what was it that led me to be spending my time in the ways that I am? You know, obviously I'm a researcher and I'm a scientist, and I'm a leader and I love science and I spend a lot of my day thinking about research and teaching, but also, you know, I do this advocacy stuff and try new things with leadership. And that's maybe not typical. Our lab operates. I wouldn't even say I run my lab because I don't know that I run it. We operate as a team in our lab in a way that is fairly atypical. And that's one of the really fun things about my job is the ability to do that. And that mostly came out of my biggest failure. I mean, again, it was a steady trajectory, but there was actually one event that caused us to, you know, go through like a step growth function in how I and how we as a group view those things. And that was all around, you know, coming up for tenure. When you're an assistant professor, you get this job and then it's like, okay, you've got five years or maybe six, depending on your field. And then after that time, you're going to be reviewed and you are either going to get tenure and have a job like essentially for life, you know, like being a Supreme Court justice, or you lose your job. So they call it up or out. So you either get promoted or you have your job taken away from you. So when I went through that at the institution where I had started my career, people vote on which of these decisions you're getting. And that vote, it wasn't entirely negative, but it wasn't as positive as I had expected it to be. And that was absolutely devastating. It was actually the worst day of my life. And I've been through some bad days. Like I've lost my dad. I've lost my best friend. I've had some really rough situations growing up, but that was the worst day of my life because it was a day where I felt like I had messed up and disappointed. I had, you know, through my mistakes, I was going to lose my job and I was going to wreck things for my family and for my group and for all of the people I care about the most. And so it felt like an utter failure in that sense of like, I've miscalculated how well we were doing. And now this thing happened and I might be out of a job and what happens to all of these people that I care about. And that's all on me. And boy, that was the lowest moment of my life, but also you know, that and the months that followed it were the most transformative as well, because one of the things that happened is in the wake of that, you know, I first called my spouse and talked to him because he was already at home. So we actually in this wild story had to like go get on a plane like two hours later to go to my brother's wedding in a different state. But then I went and immediately told my group and that hour transformed our lab culture. You know, I was already you know, developing a mentorship style and a lab culture where I viewed everyone in my lab, you know, students and postdocs as colleagues, not, you know, PI up here and students down there, like that's kind of common is this us against them or stratified level. And it's like, no, 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 we are all equals here. We were already working towards that and thinking about professional development in different ways and thinking about our team. But boy, in one hour, when you feel like the people who are your colleagues, you know, some of them support you, but some of them didn't. And that's really unexpected. And then I went and told my group and they said, I expect them to be like, okay, well, we'll join other labs or whatever. And instead they said, well, we know that we've earned tenure and we're going to get tenure here or somewhere else. And as long as we can keep doing our research, we're going to go wherever you go. And we're just going to keep doing our work and we're going to keep moving forward as if this had gone as we had expected it to. And we're in it together. Boy, you know, again, the people who are there for you at the lowest moment of your life, that changes you. That experience, it was so humbling to be given this trust that I didn't feel like I had earned and to realize that we really were all in it together. And that forever changed how I run a lab in ways that I hope never change back. It still informs how we do things in a really, really major way to this day. 
Yeah, I think I completely agree with people view failures very differently. I personally always think that failure makes such strong connections between people and it makes you such a strong human being. And there are two pathways from the failure. You either give up and just, you know, become miserable or you just go further and further until, you know, it's incredible what it does. Because some people, the birthday wishes is always like, I want you to have a happy life. I never wish that. I always be like, have a happy life, but also, you know, have some struggles in your life so that you can overcome them and be a completely different person (laughs) and make those strong connections with people. It's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing with us. I don't have any answers, but I'm I'm really interested in the people who study this. There are people who study like what makes the difference? Like when you hit a major struggle, some people hit a major struggle or even within their lives, some struggles versus others that either, yeah, you just never quite bounce back from it or it actually serves as like a catapult and drives you forward with energy that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And I often wonder what makes a difference. And one of the things that I, you know, at least my experience, and I think, you know, part of the the science bears this out of what I've seen is just having strong mentors. That is a thread that I hear so often is that when something bad happens, if you feel like you're surrounded by people who support you and you have kind of peers and mentors who support you, that is a big game changer. I think for sure. I mean, I totally agree. I think the thing of mentors is that, you know, often it'll be someone that's probably gone through a similar situation that you're going through in that moment. So they can relate and understand and hopefully make you feel better. Personally, for me, well, I like to view failure kind of with a shifted mindset to say that actually, if you fail, it's not failing. Maybe it's just you needing to change the path you're on to something different and actually realizing that failure isn't a bad thing. It can actually be, like you said, Jen, a very enlightening moment to actually then do something that maybe you're better suited to. The people that support you are those that actually encourage you down, potentially that alternate path that will make you happier, because that's what matters at the end of the day. If you're doing something that you don't enjoy, then you have to be able to realize you can change it. Yeah, this is a great way of looking at it. Actually, I'm a rock climber. And one of the quotes that I love is that unless you're like Alex Arnold and you're literally like free soloing El Capitan, you know, they're a failure truly is a failure because it's the end. You know, this is a person who's a boulder and they said, there's no such thing as failure. There's just a baseline for trying again. And I thought, wow, that's like, especially in science where we fail all the time. That's really profound and good to remember. Totally. So you talked about your lab culture briefly and how it kind of shifted over the last kind of few years from when you had that kind of failure you discussed. I mean, could you talk about then how you ensure in your lab kind of a healthy work life balance kind of environment for students and senior researchers alike to kind of work within? Yes, it's a really interesting topic to think about work-life balance, because I feel like so often that gets distilled down to some answer of how many hours a week should you work? And in fact, when I see those conversations on social media, I usually don't engage because I think it's such a complicated topic. It isn't like, oh, we can all just get around and think about it and like arrive at an answer that's like 42, right? Like 42 hours a week, that is like the key to mental health. You know, 42.76, right? Like that's what we should all do. You know, often we talk about it in like work hours, but I think it's much more deeply personal than that. And the psychology bears that out too, that I'm really fascinated by these studies on burnout that show that, you know, 
certainly if you're working way, way too many hours, like there is a number that is like, wow, that is like not physiologically sustainable or your productivity just drops off anyways. But within kind of reasonable bounds, burnout is not necessarily as much influenced by working too many hours, but is feeling too little purpose in your work. And I see that in myself that if I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I can work a lot, you know, I could work fewer hours, but then I wouldn't get to do some of the things I really love doing, like joining you to record a podcast. When I get to a place where I'm just not enjoying my work, when I'm seeing it as like, oh, I have to do this today, I have to do that. I will burn out in like two days. I will just be a total mess. And so a lot of it is just thinking about how we view our work of like, okay, how can I take this thing I have to do today and reframe it from a like, oh, I have to do that into a, oh, I'm actually kind of excited to do that because it will have this impact. That's a key kind of within ourselves. But I think also systemically, it's about giving people a lot of autonomy. I think that you can work a certain number of hours. And also there's a huge difference between being in a lab where a faculty member or advisor says, you have to work these hours you know, then working those hours is going to absolutely grind you down and cause big problems because you don't have a choice, right? You don't have agency. Whereas if you have a ton of freedom, you can say, oh, actually, you know, I'm really excited about where my project is going. I want to work really hard this week. Maybe next week I'll take it easier. But when you have that agency, it makes a huge difference. And so I think, you know, it's hard to set like hard and fast rules about like, oh, work these hours or take this vacation time. But with our group, we try to have policies that just, you know, number one, say your physical, emotional, and mental health and well-being is the absolutely number one most important thing here. Your research progress is a distant second to that. You know, if you don't finish your PhD or your postdoc or your undergrad time as a healthy and whole individual, none of it matters. And so prioritize that, you know, so creating permission to prioritize that and then creating as much agency as possible of you know, the only restriction on work hours is like, don't do something unsafe, you know, don't be alone in lab in the middle of the night doing a dangerous experiment. But outside of that, work the hours you want. You know, if you have a gap in your research and you want to take a nap or go work out or run errands, like do it, you know, structure your day however you want. If you're feeling burned out and frustrated, like take the afternoon off. If you're frustrated and burned out and something just failed, turning around and like setting it up again, you are so unlikely to be successful. You're better off just to go and, you know, exercise or do whatever, go for a walk, blow off steam, take the evening, spend it with friends and come back to it fresh the next day. And so I think to me, creating a healthy work environment or a work environment that promotes well-being is really just about giving people a lot of freedom. And then also, you know, opening the door. You know, we have policies of you can just come talk to me. You can come to me and say, hey, I'm going through some stuff. I need a week off. And no questions asked, like, okay, do it. You know, I'm here for you. I support you. If you want to tell me what's going on, I support you in it. But you also don't have to. Yeah, that's really good points that you brought up, especially the part where you were talking about how natural that your passion for your research should be. So it doesn't have to be forced by your supervisor or someone else that you need to work X amount of time. Because there are always these days when you just feel low and you don't want to do as much. And I think one of the things that helps to me is always looking to the end result. So let's say right now nothing is working, but what if you do this experiment and it works, then it's great. So it always motivates you to make other experiments. So it's never a bad idea. I also think it's, you know, realizing that if we're in the lab for eight hours, we're not going to be productive for all eight hours. You know, I read a study recently, I think of eight hours in a productive work day, you know, people are actually productive for maybe a half hour to an hour a day, actually, because their attention's being pulled from pillar to post all the time. 
actually to get work done, you need to focus. You know, there's this thing of the flow state where you have to be really in the work to actually get stuff done. If you're being in meetings or, you know, having classes and things that you're not going to be able to do the work you need to, to the standard that you want. So, you know, you will burn out. And, you know, so you've got to appreciate that as well, that we're not robots. You know, we do need breaks and things like that. So it's a Saturday morning. We were wondering about what your typical Sunday looked like. Oh, well, my typical Sunday, that is my day off. Sunday is my day off and I don't work on Sundays unless I have to. Like I check my email and I check my phone because like, you know, occasionally we've had a few like lab floods on Sundays from, you know, whatever leaking pipes or something above us. And then I will, you know, drop everything and go into work and deal with that. But for the most part, yeah, it's my one day to not work. And the funny thing about that is I actually didn't start doing that until my life got really, really busy. I think, you know, earlier in my career, when things didn't feel so hectic during the week, you know, then on the weekends, I would just do a little bit of work on Saturday, a little bit of work on Sunday. I'd be like, oh yeah, Sunday afternoon, maybe I'll do this hour of work or whatever. Not because I feel like I have to, but just because I enjoy the stuff that I do. But then as things got busier and busier and busier, I felt like, oh my goodness, if I don't like carve out one day that I know is just going to be a catch my breath day and to relax and feel restored, like I'm not going to be able to sustain this pace. And so now I'm actually pretty rigorous about that of like, you know, I'll do things obviously like run errands and hang out with my kids. And, you know, when we're not in COVID times, we enjoy going to church on Sundays together and I volunteer there with kids and stuff. And it's all a lot of fun. I don't do anything that could reasonably appear on like my work to-do list. That's a definite no. I'm not crossing anything off of a to-do list on a Sunday. Saturdays are kind of like a hybrid. Like we kind of, in pandemic times, you know, when you're working from home, every day in some ways feels like a Saturday because you're trying to work and your kids are home and you're just balancing it all. But it's definitely a little bit more of a relaxed day. Sleep in. I don't set an alarm on the weekends. Sleep in, do a little work, go for a run, come back, do a little work. If I'm doing well in work, I can take a nap and then shut it all down by like mid-afternoon and kind of relax into my day off. Do you have any specific routines? Sunday for me, it's a creep day. I always make creeps on Sunday. Oh, nice. Oh, that sounds amazing. Well, I definitely sleep in. I usually go for a walk in the morning. So I'm a runner and I run, how many days a week do I run? I run about five days a week and Sunday is one of my rest days. And so I just go for a nice walk, sometimes with my kids, sometimes not listen to a podcast. I often have a beer with lunch because it's like, I can't do that during the week. So why not? And I'm usually about to take a nap. And then we just hang out as a family. One of our, I guess, growing traditions is that my son and I have started liking playing Battleship. I don't know if you've ever played that game, but like I grew up when we had the super low tech one with like the little plastic pegs and We were at the Target store the other day buying something else, I forget what, and I saw like they had the remake, like now they have all these electronic ones and like lights go off. I'm like, ah, like the last thing I need on a Sunday is more electronics. But then they were selling the like retro version, super old battleship with like the plastic pegs. And I was like, we have to get this. And so now my 12 year old and I enjoy playing battleship on Sunday afternoons. That sounds wonderful. 
bit of an insight into my Sunday, it's usually very chilled, like kind of similar to you, Jen, in that I do kind of sleep in. I don't tend to set an alarm on the weekend generally, like to catch up on the sleep from the week. But, you know, I usually have like a bacon sandwich and a cup of tea. It's basically quite a simple Sunday, probably in front of the TV, find something on Netflix to watch. And been recently watching The Crown. Obviously, it's a topical issue just now, but that's been quite good fun. So... Yeah, I guess a question back for you is now that during the pandemic, when you're working from home more often, do you find that it's harder to kind of relax and unplug then on the weekends, on Saturdays or Sundays, because now you're in the place where you normally work? Definitely. I think the separation between, well, home life and work life is basically not there anymore you know you can walk 10 feet to the kitchen but actually you can't separate you know especially if you've got your computer like me in your bedroom then you're sleeping in the same place you're working so it's like there's zero separation there so yeah if you're in zoom calls it's kind of like you're in those four walls the whole time so I do like to get out for walks and runs and things like that because just to get the fresh air you don't think about it but now like whenever I'm out and about actually you have time to think and not be in front of a computer all day which can be quite stressful and you know tiring for eight hours a day five days a week so yeah it's pretty hard to adapt but I think one of the things that I like to do is I always combine it with something that I really look forward to for example if it's something to like catch up on the papers then I have to I always pour a specific type of coffee brand that always associates with reading papers so that I'm like okay so in order to drink that coffee I need to catch up or listening to my favorite music because I do like different international music like from all over the world so I have like specific countries associated with it's complicating but it makes it more fun That's like awesome self-leadership too, because, you know, you found a way through experimenting or whatever to be like, okay, I know that I won't be super motivated to do this task. So I'm going to find a way to add something special to that task that will motivate me to do it. And I think that that sort of like self-regulation and awareness of your own motivation is such an unbelievably important key to success or it's kind of a hallmark of success that you can recognize, you know, maybe it looks different for everyone, but what helps you be your best or what helps you to get the work done that you know you need to get done. And so I think that's like an awesome example. I love it. Yeah, what I found really funny is that once you're a chemist in the lab, you can't turn off that chemist in you because I just noticed, like as a first year grad student, I just started noticing it because I'm like, okay, how about I try this instead? And then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not in the lab right now. Like, why am I experimenting on my life? It's very funny, but I love it. I think it's great. We should absolutely be experimenting on our life. I think it's one of the awesome things about being a scientist is then you view things from exactly that lens. I mean, I've been cooking a lot more during, you know, the lockdowns. And that's because, you know, essentially it's chemistry, but you can actually eat what you make that you can't actually do if you're in the, well, hopefully not eating what you're making in the lab. So I really enjoy cooking and the chemists who cook hashtag on Twitter is great for that, you know. Can I have a philosophical question for you, Jen, in terms of like in an ideal world, if grant money and grant reviews weren't a thing in terms of if you had unlimited grant money and it was automatically successful, what would you do your research on? Would you shift the area that you research to something different or, you know, would you stay in the area you're in now? Ooh, that is a really interesting question. You know, my gut instinct would be to say I would want to do the thing that was like the last grant proposal that we wrote that we're still waiting to hear back on because 
by and large, I feel like if, you know, the things that get funded, certainly there are, you know, things that are really important that can't get funded because they're just so fundamental or there isn't quite the right agency. But often the things that do really well in funding is where you're like, okay, there's this important area, there's stuff that's been done, but there's a gap. There's something we don't know or something we can't do. And if we knew that thing or did that thing, it would move the field forward and have impact on society. And that same thing that makes proposals kind of fundable makes me excited to do the work. I would say a lot of it would be the things that we've either applied for or have funding for. Something I would do if I didn't have to worry about getting funded would actually just be like going into new areas. You know, it isn't so much that the science is something that's not fundable. It's just something that people would look at me and my expertise or my lab and say, oh, well, you're not experts in that area yet. And so therefore you're not the people to go do this research because I just love learning. I would choose some project where we would like have to learn all of this new stuff or we get to learn all of this new stuff and really drive into a new area. I posted this on our lab Slack the other day. So we do kind of psychology research along with a huge nationwide collaborative around resilience and interpersonal factors and non-cognitive factors and how those influence success. And we also have gotten into this field of epitranscriptomics and specifically adenosine to inosine editing. And there's a paper that came out and adenosine to inosine editing, it's in a lot of places, but it's especially important in the brain. And there's a paper that just came out that linked A to I editing to resilience in the context of post-traumatic stress disorder. But I was like, oh my goodness, our flame net psychology and our like RNA editing worlds collide. And actually I would love, love, love to be able to, you know, dive into that area and explore more of, you know, how is this editing process that we're trying to study in our kind of chemical biology research impacting the psychological factors and how our brains function and how we approach things like failure and challenge and belonging, you know, is that actually in measurable, quantifiable, detectable ways, you know, the editing influencing the psychological factors, but probably nobody would be convinced. Maybe I just need to find the right collaborators, but right now no one would be convinced that we have the expertise to bring those two things together. I think that's really interesting. So, I mean, it brings together what you talked about in terms of your advocation for, you know, mental health and talking about embracing failure, as well as the scientists in you, I guess, about, you know, actually trying to understand neurological aspects of that and how they relate. So I think as a potential, you know, if there was somebody reviewing that proposal, if it was me, I'd certainly be looking to give you the green light for it. Because I think it sounds like a really, really good proposal. I think it would help a lot of people because it could put kind of letters to that kind of feeling that they might have in terms of how they approach failure and appreciate how it impacts them to actually know that actually it could be something that isn't unique to them and actually everyone kind of has that to some extent. Thank you, Jen, for answering our questions and for a great conversation. It was really nice to talk to you about all the experiences that you shared with us. The varied amount of experiences you've had, I think, and especially we see that in terms of, you know, the way you advocate for mental health and talk about everything so openly, because I think the varied experiences you've had, kind of not being afraid to talk about that. I think that helps a lot of people. I think seeing that it's okay to, you know, tell people if you failed in the past, as long as you're able to build on that and develop as an individual. And I think you've shown, you know, through what we've discussed today that you've been able to do that yourself and it hasn't hindered you in terms of, you know, development as a scientist at the end of the day. Thank you so much. And I would say likewise, thank you for everything that you're sharing from your own personal journeys through this podcast and for your leadership to be bringing this to the community. It's a tremendous service to your colleagues and researchers, you know, at all career stages. I think the things that you're saying about your story now and how you approach things now can inspire 
both early career and senior researchers. And so I have much admiration for everything you're doing and appreciate the chance to talk with you. In terms of reaching out to you, how would people do that? What's the best way to get in touch? If people want to reach out to me, they can find our group online at heemstralab.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at Jen Heemstra. Though the much better Twitter account is our lab account because that one is entirely student run. And if there's anything I've realized as a faculty member, it's that the things done by the students are always way better than things done by the PI. It's just better. And so that is at Heemstra Lab and then our various contact information, different things are available through there. We just want to finish off by saying thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to catch future episodes, don't forget to follow us over on Twitter at Ken Combos Pod. Have a great day.